0: Man's natural way of dealing with sin is to cover it up and hide it, while God's way of dealing with it is confessing it and repenting of it. Even Abraham, God's friend, when he turned to political expedience, he ended up not only lying but covering up his lie. You know, in Australia, the public is extremely skeptical of politicians, as my Australian compatriots would testify to that. We're getting that way, but it's like nothing you have experienced, trust me. I used to take the bus from seminary to downtown, and I was in one of those rides, and I watched a woman arguing with the bus driver about whether her son was old enough to pay the full fare. Well, after a while, the bus driver turned to the boy and he said, How old are you, son? And the boy looked at his mother, in you know, a kind of for approval. And he said, Oh, well, I'm five years old. And the bus driver finally said, Okay, I'll let you ride this one. But I bet I know what he's going to be when he grows up. And the mother said, What, what? He said, He's going to be a politician. <laughs> now... I really don't like to knock politicians, to be quite honest, because I think most of them are doing two jobs, and the jobs of two people, Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> Someone said that Christopher Columbus would have met a great politician. Why? When he left, he didn't know where he was going. When he got there, he didn't know where he was. And then when he went back, he didn't know where he had been. And he did it all on somebody else's money. <laughs> well, <laughs> contrasting him with Abraham, he knew where he was and he knew where he was going. You remember in the last message we saw Abraham leaving Haran and going to Canaan as God's original command of him six years earlier. And that six years where he spent in Haran with his dad, Terah, was simply a time of stagnation in his walk with God. So, if you look with me to Genesis 12, verse 6. You see him passing through the land as far as the site of Shechem and Morah. The words Shechem and Morah means strength and instruction. Shechem means strength and Morah means instruction. And Abraham needed both. At this point, you might be saying to yourself, well, you know, at last... Abraham is going through perfect compliance to the command of God that God gave him. Well, the answer is yes and no. Here's the yes. Abraham gets to Canaan. And surprise! The Canaanites were there. Now, those of us who have traveled, especially overseas, I want to tell you, extremely leery of surprises in overseas countries. I have been in situations... And in some countries, names remain nameless, where your hotel room and your plane seat are sold to the highest bidder. And any reservation doesn't make any difference. All the coupons in the world and all the faxes in the world will make indifference. Now, most of us don't like unexpected surprises. We don't like the unpredictable. Most of us, if you're anything like me, don't like what is lurking in the dark. Most of us don't like what we cannot control. In fact, I have a friend who travels also a great deal. He lives in San Jose, California. He's originally from Argentina. as an evangelist. And one day, he was going back to Buenos Aires, and he went to San Francisco Airport, and he had three bags. And he told the, the lady on the counter, he said, Now, I want this bag to go to Tokyo, this bag to go to Copenhagen, but I want this bag to go with me to Buenos Aires. And the lady said, "We well, can't do this. He said, Lady, you did it last time. <laughs> When Abraham and company arrived in the land of Canaan, well, they held reservation. I mean, that reservation was guaranteed. This reservation has been confirmed by the highest authority possible, God Himself. He gave them that confirmation of their reservation. But when they got there, surprise, big red sign, a neon, right in the valley of Canaan saying, no vacancies, no vacancies, no vacancies. The Canaanites were there. Now, God had not said anything about the Canaanites to Abraham. I want to tell you something. If God tells you everything ahead of time, you won't move out of your house. (laughs) And right at this point, Abraham's faith begins to get tested. And that's where he succeeded. The fact that you are at the very center of the will of God it does not mean that you will never face problems. It does not mean that you will never face difficulties. It does not mean that you will never face adverse circumstances. The very fact that you are at the very center of the will of God does not mean that you will never experience temptation. I'll be worried if you don't. The fact that you are in the very center of the will of God It does not mean that you will not experience persecution. You will, if you are at the very center of the will of God, take it from Paul. I looked in vain in the Gospels to find anywhere, even one time, that Jesus promised you a bit of roses or tippy-toeing around the tulip. I couldn't find it. It's not in the Gospels. He said, in the world you shall have tribulation. And tribulation is what most of it is. But He said, be of good cheer in the midst of your tribulation. Why? Because I have overcome the world. That is the promise that He gave us. So right at verse 6, praise God, verse 7 comes along. While Abraham is scratching his head saying, Well, God, you told me nothing about Canaanites being here. God comes along. And speaks to him. At the time when he's worried and wondering, what's going to happen? God, you've commanded me. I brought everybody and I came here. Look where we are. What am I going to do with these fierce looking people? Verse 7 said, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your descendant, I'll give you this land. <laughs> Isn't it like the Lord? That He reassures us right at the time when we're baffled and confused. He reassures us of His promises right in the midst of uncertainty and doubt. He reassures us right in the midst of the fear and anxiety. He reassures us right at the midst of puzzlement. He comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, it's all yours. He comes to affirm His promises to Abraham. To you and to your descendants, all yours. But have you ever felt that God's assurance really serves as dealing you a double whammy instead of comforting you? I want to explain that. That in the midst of your puzzlement, sometimes the Lord's assurance doesn't comfort you very much. Why? Abraham's puzzlement at this moment is doubled, actually. Not only that he's an old man, not only that his wife is barren, now he's facing these fierce looking, mean looking Canaanites, but God said, It's okay. What do you mean it's okay? It's okay, it's all yours. And the first thing hits Abraham's mind, I'm sure, he said, I'm going to get killed here. God just obviously wants me to get killed. He must have some other idea of how I'm going to get this land. Your problem may be too big for you, no matter how stoic and how you may appear to be strong and resilient, but I want to tell you, the problem is not too big for God. What God is waiting for is your surrender. What God is waiting for is you give up this displaying image of the macho. What God is waiting for is your willingness to give up the facade and be broken before Him. And said, so here it is. When my reputation means nothing. When who I am means nothing, but whose I am, it means everything. And Abraham does pass the test. How come? Well, he pitched his tent and he built an altar. Look at it. If you study the life of Abraham really carefully, spend time looking at it very carefully, you're going to find the following. That whenever he is at the center of the will of God... He does two things. He pitches his tent and builds an altar. That's significant. For Abraham, a tent is a symbol of his temporary dwelling. A tent is a symbol of him not being consumed with material possession. A tent is a symbol of the fact that he is on a pilgrimage and a sojourner. A tent is a symbol of being vulnerable to the will of God. A tent is a symbol that he is ready for the master's call anytime. You might say, well, wait a minute, didn't everybody live in a tent in those days? No. Abraham's tent indicated the temperate nature of his life and living. Yet the altar was built of stone. <laughs> indicating the durability of his friendship and fellowship with God. Indicating the permanence of his relationship with Yahweh. In the Bible, there are three purposes for which an altar is built. The first one, it is a place where a person meets God, and God meets with that person. Abraham did, Isaac did, Jacob did, Moses did, Joshua did, many others in the scripture built an altar for meeting with God. Secondly, an altar is a place of sacrifice. They sacrificed bulls, goats, lambs, on the altar that that was built. And later on, God tells Abraham to build an altar and offer his son as a sacrifice. The third purpose of an altar is being a place of prayer. In Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, it tells us that the prayers that are offered by God's people are coming up as symbolized in the incense on the altar, rising to the Lord. I want to ask you a question. Please don't wiggle out of this one. Do you have an altar? Do you have a place where you meet God on a regular basis? Do you have a place where you offer sacrifice to the Lord? Do you have a place where you offer intercession before God? Verses 9 to the end of chapter 12 gives us a clear example of how a man of God, and I venture to say the woman of God, can slip outside of the will of God so quickly. Charles Spurgeon wrote an article a hundred years ago warning of how fast a believer can slip out of the will of God and continue in that down descent. He said, biblical truth is like the pinnacle of a steep, slippery mountain. One step away, and you find yourself on the downgrade. I believe this is right with all my heart. It is right for individual Christians. It is right for churches. Abraham only took one step away from the will of God, and the rest was history. He did not go to Egypt right away. He didn't go from Canaan and said, well, I'll go to Egypt. No. He went to a place that is not too far away from Canaan. The Bible said he went to the Negev. So he probably said to himself, I can always get back. I can always get back. I'm not too far. But it wasn't long before he turned his back on his altar. It wasn't long before he folded his tent. It wasn't long before he packed his bags and he left the place where God intended for him to be. Verse 10, there was a famine in the land. After all, Abraham got hungry. A man has got to eat. Please listen to me. God did not tell Abraham to go to Canaan so he can die. He said to him that I will give you the land to you and your descendants. In other words, Abraham, your food, your family welfare, all your well-being, everything is my problem, not yours. You see, Egypt in the Scripture is a place to go to when you are running away from God. Egypt is a symbol of the flesh. Egypt is a symbol of the chains and the shackles of satanic bondage. So going to Egypt symbolizes moving out of the will of God. And you know into what? Into do-it-yourself type of obedience. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Do it yourself, obedience. So much so, the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 30, verses 1 and 2 and 3, he said, Word to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin and walk down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, says the Lord, The strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. The trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. What happens when you get out of the will of God? Sinning becomes a piece of cake. I tell you something else happens when you are out of the will of God. Whether it is obvious or not, fear begins to get inside of you and take hold of you. And when Abraham was in the will of God, he was tested... In Canaan, he saw this mean, fierce Canaanite, but they didn't frazzle him. They didn't stop him. He pitched his tent and he built his altar. But now, he's out of the will of God. He became fearful. (laughs) And he began to think in the safety of his wife's husband. You see... In those days, it was a prerogative of Pharaoh to take any woman that he wanted and add her to his harem. If the woman is married, well, the ruler would order his death, the death of the husband, so he could keep it to himself. And Abraham did not like this bit about killing of the husband. He did not like that at all. Self-preservation instinct took over. Now I want to tell you, if you calculate right, you find that Sarah was 65 years old at that time. She must have been a knockout. And you know what? Big Abe knew it too. So he, so he asked her to join him in the big lie. Sarah, say that you're my sister. And you know what? It was half-truth because she was half-sister as it was the custom in the Chaldeans at that time. But you know what? Forget about it. it's half-truth or full-truth or not. It is the intention of the heart. And the intention of Abraham's heart was to deceive for self-protection. And you know what? He did it again. And that's why I'm going to come back later on in this series to talk about lying among evangelical Christians. It is the acceptable sin. I'm going to talk about deliverance from character flaws and from inherited sin. Because Isaac inherited the same thing. And he did the same thing. So did Jacob. I believe the Lord can deliver you from the generational sin. Talking about lying and politicians, I read the story some time ago about the famed Louisiana politician. I saw the film some time ago about his life, Huey Long. And uh, when he was going, starting on one of his campaigns uh, for re-election, somebody said to him, uh, he said, now Mr. Long, this is Roman Catholic territory here. He said, Okay. So every stop on that day, he would start his speech with the following words. When I was a boy, I used to get up at 6 a.m. on Sundays and hitch the old horse to the buggy and take my Catholic grandparents to Mass. Every speech started with that sentence. Well, the audience loved him, of course. One of the local leaders told him there was a great performance, but I didn't know you had Catholic grandparents. And Long said, don't be a darn fool, I didn't even have a horse. (laughs) Some 1,600 years after Abraham, a husband and a wife named Ananias and Sapphira agreed to lie to the apostles, and they were struck dead right on the spot. But you know what? Sometimes the immediate fruit of sin is okay. Sometimes the immediate fruit of sin is pleasurable. The Bible said sin is pleasurable for a season. There's no use denying that because immediately Abraham was rewarded with wealth and with cattle and he was lavished by Pharaoh wonderful wealth but then God intervened and no doubt when that happened Abraham felt shame and embarrassment but despite of Abraham's lack of trust God preserved him anyway look at verse 17 this is a great plague fell on Pharaoh and his household. God had to preserve Sarah's honor because he knew what is going to happen. Isaac is going to be born despite of Abraham's selfish ambition. Men, I want to tell you something. Would you listen to me? I know I get hard on the men, but just listen to me just for a second. I'm going to stop preaching. For ten seconds, and I'm going to be meddling, and then I'm going to move on. It is our God-given responsibility to be a cover for our wives. This business of dragging wives and children to the court is a shame. In Egypt, Abraham sank to the bottom of the quicksand pit and he was rebuked by a pagan pharaoh talk about life's most embarrassing moments this was it the friend of god is being rebuked by a pagan what did they say about abraham's testimony huh how do you testify to your unsaved colleague when your life is out of order Christians who are most vulnerable to sin, please listen to me. Christians who are most vulnerable to sin are those who say to themselves, I am justified in the sight of God, and you are. I am seen as righteous in the sight of God, and you are. But then stop guarding against sin. Stop guarding against sin. And they fall. But I want to tell you the scripture says the fact you are justified, the fact that you're righteous before God does not stop you from putting the whole armor of God every single day so that you stand and withstand the attack of the devil. Some of you are more hooked on the gospel of self esteem than the gospel of genuine repentance. Some of you are more tied into the gospel of performance and achievement than the gospel of surrender. Some of you are more concerned about your image in the community and the associations you belong to than your purity of life. Some of you are more into touchy-feely, experiential things than the sword of the Word of God. And what God is saying to us today from the failure of Abraham, from the lesson in the life of this man, put your whole trust in me and I will direct your steps. You don't need to run into Egypt. You don't need to put your trust in other things or in people. Put your trust in me, says the Lord. I don't need to get out of the will of God for self-preservation. Because my life is not all that precious to me. It is precious in the sight of God. But when my job is finished, He's going to take me home. Whether I live or whether I die, I belong to the Lord. When the day comes, so what? What? Nothing in this world is worth displeasing the Lord and running out of His will. And it is my prayer that this would be my desire of my heart and the desire of each heart as we pray. If you've been encountered with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've been rebuked by His Holy Spirit, or a sin in your life that you're not guarding against, or you're winking at, Anything that the Lord understands. The Lord would want you to confess it. If you don't know how, said, Lord, I don't know how to put on the whole armor of Christ every day. Teach me to put on the helmet of salvation. Oh, Lord, teach me to have the sword of the word in my hand all the time. Because, Lord, I know I cannot win the battle if I let my sword down. Because God wants you to win. He wants you to have victory. That is His desire. Our loving Father, I stand before you as the chief sinner. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your willingness to receive me again and again and to forgive me again and again. Father God, that the Holy Spirit will move among us right now as we're standing before you. Holy Spirit, come and sweep right across. Bring conviction, bring judgment, bring comfort, bring joy to the disheartened. Strengthen the weak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way.